You're listening to the North Parkway Podcast, weekly talks designed to help you take the next step in your spiritual journey. You can learn more about our church at northparkway.org. And if these talks are helpful to you, consider using the link in the description to give. Your financial support helps us continue to make great content. All right, well, that's enough intro. Let's get to today's talk. Previously on Science and Faith. We need evidence and experience. We need science and faith informing our worldview because I believe that the same God who wrote the Bible also wrote all of the laws of nature. If you want to know God, you need to study both his books, his word and his world. Science and faith are companions. Is it possible? that one is describing how and one is describing who. You can agree with the evidence and just draw a different conclusion. Every time I lose the magic, I gain the majesty. He made it all. Never use just believe as a cop-out or a shortcut. God gave you a brain and a desire for knowledge, so use it for his glory. There's such a value in being able to say, I don't understand it yet, And while I search, I'm okay with knowing this doesn't have to make sense. I don't throw out the textbook because one piece I don't understand. Do you really expect all of his ways to make sense to you? Doesn't that seem a little unrealistic? Have you ever had a crisis of faith? Something that just comes by out of nowhere and shakes your whole world up. I was 14 years old and I can remember, I can see in my mind the spot in the church where I was when I learned that the 27 books of the Bible that we call the New Testament had not always been the same collection of books that it was actually decided on hundreds of years after Jesus by a bunch of dudes. I remembered learning that and having this whoa moment where everything that I ever believed was sort of dislodged and up in the air for a little bit. What if those guys missed one of the books that needed to be in that collection? Or what if there was something in there that wasn't right? It was a really big deal because as a Christian, everything I believed about God was based on the Bible. And if I couldn't trust the Bible, could I trust anything that it says about God? Now, usually in that moment, the church's response is the same. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. And that's great. I believe that all scripture is inspired. But in a moment like that, it's not very compelling evidence. I mean, really, consider this. Imagine that Donald Trump and Joe Biden each create their own news network ahead of this year's election. And the Trump network runs a special. Here's why the Trump network always tells the truth and never makes anything up. And the Biden network says, here's why you shouldn't trust that guy, but you should trust everything we do because we only tell the truth. Are you really gonna be sold on either one of those because they say they're telling the truth? Of course not. You need something beyond the Bible saying the Bible is truth to believe it. And in this series, we've been working week by week. We've been building supports, anchors for your faith to be built on so it isn't blind faith. 
Well, today I want to take you all the way to the lowest layer and probably the most critical one. Because if you're like I was at 14, everything you know about God, everything you believe about God is built on that book. And you need something more than the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. You need a reason for your faith, not just in the God of the Bible, but in the Bible itself. Because when doubts and challenges come, the faith you build on the Bible is only as strong as the support you have under the Bible. So write that down. If you've got your fill-in-the-blank notes, we'll put that up on the screens. The faith that you build on the Bible, and we'll get the lights up here in just a minute. There we go. The faith you build on the Bible is only as strong as the support that you have under the Bible. It's really important that you believe this is true if you're saying, this is the way that I know who God is. This is the way I know how to be saved. This is the way I know how God expects me to treat my fellow man. It's really important then to have faith that, that the original words written in this book are true and that the version that I hold in my hands or that I look up on my screen is still the same truth that was written originally. There have been no shortage of challenges presented to the Bible over the years. And I cannot convince you to believe this is true with any amount of evidence that I give you today. That's not the point. What I do want to do is if you say, I believe that God created the universe and I want to know with confidence what I can trust about who he is, I want to give you some reasons that I have some foundations that I've built over the years, reasons that I trust that this is God's revelation of truth to humanity. So I wanna give you three of those today and uh, we'll move kinda quickly through these. these. Consider this an overview, okay? Consider this like, anybody like to go to Costco or Sam's and you get the appetite, the, the little sample? They're like, wow, that salmon is really good. And they're like, you can buy a whole 16 pound bag right here, okay? This is the little sample. And, uh, and I want to whet your appetite for searching because you need to know why you believe that's God's truth. You need to know why. So I'm going to give you three reasons that I have. Let me give you the first one here. Write this down. I believe that you can trust the Bible because the Bible has accurately predicted world events. The Bible accurately describes and records world events. But a lot of sources do that. This one has actually predicted things that were going to happen before they happen. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty impressive. Now, it's, it's important to note that is not the purpose of this book. That is not the main purpose of prophecy. So when you, when you look at the Bible, and all of the times in the Old Testament especially, the, the prophet, their main goal was to try to steer the hearts of people toward God. The main point is not to predict the future, but every once in a while, while they're steering hearts toward God, they're recording things that happen. This is not a history book. It was not intended to be, but it does depict real people, real places, and real events of history. Let me give you a few fun examples. Okay, so in Ezekiel chapter 26, 
God is giving through this prophet uh, a prediction of destruction that's going to come to the city of Tyre. And it says this specifically, Ezekiel 26, 4, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and tear down its towers. And he says a really interesting descriptive thing. He says, I will scrape away its soil and make it a bare rock. Okay. Now, here's what historians have discovered for us. When this prophecy was written, the walls around Tyre had not yet been built. It was a big trading city. They didn't have walls when this was written. But there was a prediction. I'll tear down the walls. I'll scrape it down to bare rock. Okay. Somewhere between 570 and 590 BCE is when this prophecy was given. Now, in 322, Alexander the Great is going on this conquest and he's knocking down city after city after city. And historians, Greek historians tell us that Alexander was able to sack the city of Tyre. Do you know how he accomplished that? By tearing down the walls around the old city and building a causeway and marching his troops across this land bridge to sack the new city. It's kind of cool. So hundreds of years later, this guy comes along and not only sacks the city, but does it by tearing the walls down to bare rock and building a bridge out of the bricks. Pretty cool stuff. And there are tons of Moments like that in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 describes the rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Hundreds of years before some of those would exist on the scene. Daniel chapter 11 accurately predicts that three rulers from when he wrote, a Persian ruler would rise up and go attack the Greeks. We know that happened. It was Xerxes. That's a really interesting word to say. Xerxes, right? Uh, any of you guys who are familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae, 300 uh, Spartans versus the Persian horde, okay? Daniel, hundreds of years before that happens, he predicts this is going to happen. And in the same passage, he predicts that a Greek ruler would rise up in rebuttal would have a wildly successful campaign, but would die young and be, would be uh, replaced, his kingdom would be divided by four different people to follow him up. And that's interesting because after Xerxes rose up, this guy Alexander comes onto the scene, he's wildly successful, he dies at the age of 32, he has no descendant, and so the Greek empire that he inherited and expanded was divided among his four generals. It's pretty cool. It's an interesting coincidence, unless it's not a coincidence. Isaiah 45 predicts Cyrus the Great by name more than 100 years before he would be born. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple decades before it would happen. And he got a lot of flack about it. There are all of these things that you see in the Bible that accurately not only describe real world people, but they predict things that are going to happen. Now, there's a, there's a normal, uh, a, a pretty popular way to explain that if you don't want to believe in the Bible, if you don't believe that that was true, and you have a lot of historians that will say, well, that part must have been added later. No one could have known that that was going to happen. No one could have known Tyre would fall like that. No one could have known Xerxes and Alexander. So they must have added that in later. 
The problem is, when you look at the text and the way the language was, was written, it was, it's consistent. Okay, is this anybody, anybody ever read, um, okay, how many of you guys for English class, you've read some Shakespeare, right? It's, okay. Have you ever noticed, like the King James Version, they use language a little bit differently than we do today? Okay. Anybody ever notice that words that were trendy in the 90s, we don't use anymore? Okay. It's really hard to fake that stuff. If you weren't around 200 years ago when you try to add something, it's really hard to fake that stuff. But you might say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. So let me give you another one. This is fun. I just learned this a couple of weeks ago. So Jeremiah chapter 49 has several predictions about nations and what would happen to them other nations around Israel. And there are two passages. We're going to put them back to back up on the screens. The first one is verse 13. And God says, Bozrah, and that, that is the sort of the capital city of the nation of Edom. Okay? It says, Bozrah will become a ruin and a curse, an object of horror and reproach. Okay? This is important. And all its towns will be in ruins forever. Okay? And he also says in the same chapter, verse 6, I will restore, okay, they're going to be destroyed, but I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites in days to come. Two predictions. Two countries. He said one of them's going to be ruined. They'll be desolate forever. One of them I'm going to restore. Now, here's what's interesting. That was written about 2,500 years ago. If you look today, if you search it up today, the nation of Edom has completely disappeared from the face of the earth. They no longer exist as a people group because after the nation was sacked, the people spread out, intermarried with other people so much, there is no one alive on the planet that can say, I am ancestrally an Edomite. And the land where they were living, 2,500 years later, is still predominantly wilderness and desert, it's sparsely populated. Okay. Now, the Ammonite kingdom and their capital city of Ammon was also destroyed. It was also sacked. It became part of the Roman Empire and then it became um, it, it, part of several other empires. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. And it would go back and forth between being kind of populated and being a wilderness where no humans live. And in 1909 people decided to put a settlement back on the ancient foundations of the city of Ammon. 1909, there were about 2,000 people living there in Ammon, Ammon, Jordan. As of 2021, there were over 4 million people living in Ammon, Jordan. The fortunes of that state, of that people group, have been restored, but listen... That was over 2,500 years, 2,400 years later, okay? You can't go back and write that. We all know it was written there a long time before the 1900s, and just in the last 100 years, that prophecy is being fulfilled. There's so many things that the Bible predicts accurately. That's one reason you can trust it. Let me give you another one. You can trust the Bible because the Bible has been passed down accurately, one of the great things that made me nervous when I was learning about this book, and maybe it has for you, and maybe you're still kind of unsure about this, is, well, well maybe the original things written down were trustworthy, but this thing was copied by hand? 
again and again and again. A whole bunch of different people had their opportunity to add their spin on the text. Do we really know that we can trust what it says? And do we really know that we can understand what the original language says? Okay, because you do realize the Bible was not written in English. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Can we really know that an expression from Hebrew would even make sense to us in English? Let me give you one reason why I believe that we can. So Jesus spoke all three of those languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. We know that he knew how to read uh, Hebrew, and I believe Greek as well. And uh, how do we know that? How do you know that, Chris? Here's, here's why, because... In Jesus' time, you may not realize this, did you know in Jesus' time there were two different translations of the Old Testament? Did you know that? The original text in Hebrew, but uh, I don't remember exactly, about 100 years before Jesus was born, so many Jews began speaking Greek because of Alexander the Great that they decided we need to translate this into Greek because some of these guys can only read and write in Greek. And so there was a whole Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's known as the Septuagint. And Jesus quoted passages from both. From both the Greek and the Hebrew text. What does that tell me? That tells me that Jesus was not concerned about the translation. He believed that the truth was still the truth, whichever translation you use. Write this down. The truth of the Bible is sturdy enough to be translated and rephrased and still be the truth. If Jesus is willing to quote from multiple translations, I think I can too. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, okay, really, really old document, really ancient scripts, ancient texts, it is a valid concern. How do we know that the thing we have today has been accurately handed? Okay, I know the translation's good. How can I trust that it's been accurately handed down? For years and years and years, English translations of the Bible were based on a copy of the Bible called the Masoretic Text. Okay? And this was the oldest translation, this is the oldest parchment piece that we had, and, uh, and it only went back, well, not a very long time. And it, something interesting happened. In 1947, there was a, uh, a couple of teenage shepherds that were chasing after some runaway sheep about 13 miles from Jerusalem, and they ran into a cave looking for these sheep. And in that cave, they found some large clay pots. And inside of those pots were fragments of the Old Testament that had not been touched since they were originally written and sealed away. So they went, they shared that with other people. Archaeologists descended on the scene. Uh, they discovered what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found tons and tons of these clay pots filled with fragments containing pieces of every Old Testament book except for Esther. So I've, out of all 39, they found 38 of those. One of them, the, the Isaiah, is the entire thing in one intact scroll, which is almost inconceivable for something that's that old. And, and they, they used the same carbon dating that the church tends to not like when it's talking about the age of the earth. They used the same scientific process. And they said, guys, these things date back to before Jesus was born. 
Some of these are 200 BC when these things were written and they were sealed away. And so somebody said, all right, well, this will be interesting. Let's see how much stuff has changed over time. Let's compare the Masoretic text to the Dead Sea Scrolls and see how much the telephone game has changed the Bible. Because, come on, anybody else play the telephone game? Right? You get all your buddies and you have one sentence at this end and by the time it just goes around the table, it doesn't even make sense. It's not the same thing. Let's see how much the telephone game has changed the Bible. So they compared the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's what they found. We'll put that up on the screens. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic text are more than 95% identical. And the vast majority of that 5% difference is punctuation and spelling. Okay? That is impressive. You're talking about something that had been sealed away for almost 2,000 years. It had been hand copied and hand copied and hand copied. And it was that accurate? Okay. You can have great confidence that what was written and what Jesus was quoting in his time is the exact same thing when you pull up whatever translation on the YouVersion Bible app that you have. It's the same. It's the same. Well, what about the New Testament, Pastor Chris? How can I trust the New Testament? Okay. There are two ways that you can verify the integrity of an ancient document. Two ways that we use that we say, can we trust this that I have today is what was originally written, okay? Those two things are the number of copies and the gap between the events and the record, okay? If Dirk Jr. decided, I'm going to write a history of the Revolutionary War, and you wrote it today, you said, this is what happened and this is what George Washington did, okay, published 2024. We're not going to give a lot of credit to that. Why? Because he wrote it hundreds of years after all of those guys were dead. I don't know if I can trust that he knows what really happened. Okay. Let, me, let me give you some, some pieces of other ancient texts that are considered generally reliable. Anybody ever read Homer's Odyssey? The Odyssey and the Iliad in school? couple of you guys did, all right? 1,800 different manuscripts, different ancient copies of that play, that story, as early as 400 years after Homer died. That's the oldest version that we have, 400 years after he died. We're pretty sure he still wrote it, okay? What about Oedipus? Anybody study Oedipus by Sophocles? 193 manuscripts, 700 years after he died. The writings of Plato, 200, not Play-Doh, <laughs> okay? We all know about Play-Doh, all right? I trust that completely. I ate it when I was a kid, and I'm still here today, okay? Plato, 210 manuscripts, 13 years after, 1,300 years after he died. Herodotus is known as the father of Western history. He's the most important Greek history source available to the world today. There are a sum total of 49 copies of his writings. As, and the furthest back we have are 1,300 years after he died. And everyone believes that he wrote it. Listen, the New Testament, so far as of today, has over 5,700 different ancient texts that have been discovered. The oldest of which is as recent as 40 years after the time it was written. 
Okay? That is absolutely preposterous when you're talking about 2,000 years of history. And yet, here it is. And you can write this down. The New Testament is by far, by far, by miles and miles and miles and light years, by far the most reliable document in antiquity. If you say, I can't trust that what the apostles wrote is what we have today, you absolutely can't trust that anything, that any other Western history was at all related to the people who wrote it. Okay? I trust this book. Let me give you one more. This is my favorite. I trust the Bible because Jesus lived, died, and rose again just like the Bible recorded. Write that down. I trust this book because of the central figure in this book. Okay, this thing was written over the span, did you realize this? Over the span of 1,500 years, this book was compiled. Okay? Dozens of different authors over three continents who spoke three different languages. Many of the authors were completely unaware of what other people were writing, had no idea that what they were writing was going to be part of a volume. And when you put it all together, all of this thing all points to one focal person. All of this, all of these things that work in harmony, they all point to one person. That is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born and lived in the actual world, who talked to real actual world people, who died a physical death and who came back to life Again, you say, well, I'm not sure if I can believe that Jesus actually came back from the dead. How do we know that that really happened? How do we know? Well, anything like that, there has to be an element of faith. But I want you to consider, okay? Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he killed himself. There were 11 of his apostles, his closest followers left. Okay? Out of those 11 guys, 10 of them were killed because they refused to deny that Jesus rose back from the dead. Some of them watched their families get crucified and then they themselves were crucified and they were so convinced that this man came back from the dead they were willing to let their entire family and themselves die rather than deny their savior. Now that's something that you typically don't do if you made up a story so you can get on the news. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. And I want to share some interesting stats with you, and I want to give credit to John Bevere. Many of you guys are familiar with him. We've done some of his studies. He uh, compiled a lot of this stuff, and you, if you want the long version of it, he's got a great explanation uh, on YouTube. But in, 19, in the 1950s, a Christian statistician decided to figure out, okay, what are the odds that all of these Old Testament prophecies about Jesus would be fulfilled by one man? What are the odds that this one guy could actually be the one that all of the, because there were tons of prophecies in the Old Testament about this Savior who was coming, this Messiah. So in the 50s, he and 600 science statistician students, they, they conducted this big study and they said, all right, let's look, at, let's look at eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus and let's see what are the odds that one man would fulfill eight of these by chance. 
So they calculated these numbers and they said from the time Jesus was born until the mid-1950s when they did this study, what are the odds that one guy, one guy would fulfill these? And just hold up, don't put that up on the screens until the end, Danielle, okay? Said that the odds of one guy doing that are one in 10 to the 17th power, okay? That's a big number. If you're not really into numbers, let me give you an illustration. Again, thank you, John Bevere, for this visual, okay? Uh, you guys familiar with a silver dollar? You know how big that is? Kind of a little bigger than a quarter, okay? If you had 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, there's no building on the planet that's big enough to hold them all. It would be so many silver dollars that if you spread them equally across the entire state of Texas, it would be two feet deep, okay? So imagine the state of Texas filled with silver dollars two feet deep. You get in a helicopter and they fly up above and they say, anytime in the next five, six, 10, 12 hours as we're flying over Texas, you tell me, I'll lower you down. We'll blindfold you. You'll dig through two feet full of coins and pull out one. And the odds of you getting the right coin are one in 10 to the 17th power. Seems like a pretty wild thing. That's the odds that one guy will fulfill eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah. Well, what about 16? He said, what are the odds that one guy would fulfill 16 prophecies? Well, that's a lot more silver dollars. In fact, I want to get my number right here. That would be uh, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Okay? That's so many silver dollars it wouldn't fit on planet Earth. You would have to, okay, you would have to make a sphere of silver dollars, if you want 10 to the 45th power silver dollars, you would have to make a sphere of silver dollars five and a half billion miles across. Okay? That's, that's 6,000 times bigger than the sun. A sphere of silver dollars that big across, and if you had a spaceship and you could fly all the way around it, you could fly around it and you say, okay, stop at any point. And uh, you might have to dig two and a half billion miles deep to find the right coin. But if you dig, 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 the odds of you finding that one coin, those are the odds that any one person will fulfill 16 of the prophecies about the Messiah. So they said, all right, those give you one more. What about 48? What about 48 prophecies? The odds of anyone fulfilling 48 prophecies are one in 10 to the 150 seventh power that's such a big number legitimately guy I don't even have a physical example for that what are the odds okay that's, let me put it to you this way there are 60 seconds in a minute right there are 31 million seconds in a year every second since Jesus was born that's about 10 to the 12th power the number of seconds in a trillion years is about 10 to the 20th power the odds that anyone by chance would fulfill 48 of the prophecies about Jesus is 10 to the 157th power and guys this one man fulfilled all 300 prophecies about him there's no statistical probability that anything like that could happen by chance. I have confidence 
about the man that this book is about and I have confidence about the book that points to this man. And ultimately, you need reasons, you need foundations, but ultimately, all the reasons in the world cannot produce faith in you. Faith is something you have to choose. And as we wrap this whole series up, as we bring this whole thing back around full circle, it ultimately, all of the evidence that you need, it all comes back to faith. And you have to decide for your life, for your home, for your family, where am I going to invest my faith? Am I going to be satisfied with blind faith or do I want my faith to be built on something stronger? Watch this. The bottom level of every worldview is faith. That much is inescapable. If you want to believe that everything we see is everything that there is, that the complexity in the world came through unguided process, you can believe that, but that takes faith. And if you want to believe that everything we see was made by a personal God who also made and loves you, well, that also takes faith. And there's too much at stake for that faith to be blind faith. If there's one thing you can take away from this whole series, I hope that that's it. It's the value of, the need for evidence to support your faith, not just believing because it feels good or because grandma, grandpa said so, or because your high school science teacher said so. It's believing because you looked at the evidence and you establish your own conclusion. For yourself, sure, but also you need that evidence for others. See, when I had that crisis of faith as a teenager, I was blessed to have parents to walk with me through it. I talked about it with them and they reasoned back and forth with me. And I realized that if I believed that God was powerful enough to create the universe, and if I believed that Jesus was willing to step off of the throne of heaven to come and die in my place and come back to life, and, and if I believed that when Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be our guide, that he meant that, then I could trust that the Holy Spirit would work through humans to preserve the truth in his scripture so that somebody like me could know who God is and know how to be saved. I have reasons for my faith. I trust the Bible because of all of these things we've talked about today. I, I trust it more confidently than I have ever trusted it before. But there's one more reason that we didn't talk about yet that I have for my faith. The Bible for me is not just impersonal truth. I've put these truths into practice. I've witnessed these things play out in my own life. I talk to God about things and he responds back to me. I've felt the Holy Spirit. I've experienced God's love and God's grace at a deeper level than my intellect can go. And the strength, guys, the strength is not picking one or the other. The strength is not in picking experience or evidence. The strength is in having both in harmony with each other. Life is messy. Challenges to your faith are gonna come. And consider this, 
for those of you who say, oh, pastor, you don't have to worry about me. I'm confident in God's truth. I don't need all of these reasons. I just believe. Well, maybe these reasons aren't really for you. Maybe someday a 14-year-old is going to have her own crisis of faith. And if she comes to you looking for guidance, if she comes to you because she trusts you, and if she brings these doubts and these crisis moments to you and your answer is, oh, just believe God is good. Well, maybe that's not enough for her. Maybe she looks somewhere else for support and evidence. And she ends up walking away from the faith that could have saved her. This stuff is important, not just for you. It's important for everyone connected to your life. And your soul is too valuable to be flippant about. Don't bet your soul on blind faith. And don't bet someone else's on it. Build your faith in God on a solid foundation. Know why you trust the Bible. Always be ready to give a reason for the faith that you have. And then go out into the world and live like you believe it's true. Hey, this is Pastor Chris again. Thanks for listening. If today's talk was helpful in your spiritual life, odds are there's someone you know who could benefit from it. Take a minute right now to share it with them. And if you live in the area, come try out a service in person because church is more fun with friends. See you next time.